As you all know by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code JUSTBASEBALL and you will get up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. One, download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code JUSTBASEBALL. Two, deposit at least $10 and place your first wager on any game. Three, you will receive up to $1,500 in bonus bets if your bet loses. Just make sure you use bonus code JUSTBASEBALL when you sign up. Disclaimer, BetMGM.com for terms and conditions and must be 21 or older to wager. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., New York, or Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in Colorado, D.C., Illinois, Indiana, Kansas, Louisiana, Maryland, Mississippi, New Jersey, Nevada, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, and Wyoming. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona, 1-800-327-369. 5050 in Massachusetts, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, and 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan, in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code JUSTBASEBALL and get your $1,500 first bet offer today. Two games of the championship series under our belt. We have game two of the NLCS tonight, but we got a recap. We got a recap game two and the Rangers holding off the Astros to take a two nothing lead heading back to Arlington. We also have to talk about a certain someone um, declining their end of a mutual option after there was no three year extension for someone that wholeheartedly deserved a three year extension. We're going to do that off the top. Jack and Aram on the Just Baseball Show for Tuesday, October 17th. Kim Ang is not returning as the general manager of the Miami Marlins. And we're going to go the Kim Ang conversation. Then we're going to go ALCS, then NLCS. But Kim Ang helped the Miami Marlins to the playoffs in a full season for the first time since... Uh, well, I, yeah, in a full season, first time since 03, but also first time they finished above 500 in a full season since 2009. So it's been a while. It's been a while. And they go. They have immense success. It seems like everything is on the up and up. And for the first time in an incredibly long time, the Miami Marlins have the person to lead their front office and overhaul the organization that is the Miami Marlins that has not experienced much winning in the last two decades. But then they decide to hold back the checkbook in a gross way, and I hope she lands in a way better situation. Do you want to give us the 811 on it? Because I have like the bones of it, but explain why Kim Ang is not returning as the GM of the Marlins. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's something that everyone's still trying to get to the bottom of. And I've 
tried to do a little bit of digging myself and then obviously just reading of whatever's been put out and just kind of trying to read the tea leaves of uh, just some of the way things have been said uh, and some of the way things have kind of gone here. There's a few moving parts to this. I think one, the very obvious is you offer Kim Ang a multi-year extension, you know, at the end of la- of this past season or right now and say, you are pretty much presiding over baseball operations. She's taking that. She's, Rolling with that, and the Marlins have continuity for the first time in a long time. What it seems like the Marlins wanted to do, uh, according to various reports, and you know, I think most notably the Athletic, is that they wanted a head of baseball operations, um, and there were some differences on maybe how they wanted to structure that front office. And I think that's interesting to me because I think what's lost is people are kind of saying, here we go again. Like it was Derek Jeter and then he left because it was a disaster and he didn't have the same vision as the ownership. And now it's Kim Ang and now she's leaving because ownership has a different, I think, perspective on things. I think it's kind of different. And I honestly think that a big reason why Kim Ang was not willing to sign on to, you know, having a president of baseball operations or whatever it would be preside over her is that that's what she was doing before. And when that was the case before, her hands were absolutely tied. I think the Jeter situation was entirely different. He wasn't good at his job. Uh, The front office was in disarray and Kim wasn't really able to do her job. And there was a lot of things that I think just were done really poorly. And there was a lot of unhappy employees within the org. I think it was very clear that they just needed to go in separate directions. That's Jeter and the Marlins. That's entirely different for me. This situation is, I think the Marlins either just not fully having a hundred percent confidence in Kim being able to do all of the other things that come with being a general manager uh, beyond the 40-man roster. And and that's the interesting side of it to me because, sure, I mean, she's new to the gig. Um, She maybe hasn't had, you know, the the experience maybe building out a front office, but how many new GMs who are successful have had that? So I – I think that there were some differences in terms of what Kim wanted to do, maybe money that she wanted to spend in terms of, you know, player development, in terms of, you know, repurposing the front office. And for whatever reason, Bruce Sherman didn't agree with that. That part is really surprising to me. Uh, And and I think when people talk about her declining her side of the mutual option, of course she did. That's the equivalent of a player having a really crappy mutual option at five Five million AAV. Of course, the team's going to pick up their side. Players going to decline theirs because there's greener pastures out there, you know, in free agency. And it might not be as easy for Kim Ang, but she's going to get a better opportunity than being a lame duck on a Marlins team again that she really helped overachieve and do more than anybody would have expected last year. So I'm excited to hear what else comes out because I think we're slowly going to get little pieces of the puzzle as time progresses. I don't think Kim wants to go scorched earth either. She's also a pro's pro. I've yeah. been fortunate enough to meet her a couple of times and, you know, just really appreciated the way she goes about her business. She's not going to air out her previous team as she's going to look for new jobs. And also she's just a professional. She's going to get a new job. She's going to get a really good job. They mm-hmm. wanted to hire a president of baseball operations to preside over her. So after She took the Miami Marlins. She constructed the Miami Marlins into a postseason team across a full 162 for the first time in two decades. They wanted to not extend her, which is, by the way, commonplace. So we've been talking about the executive carousel a good bit this offseason early. Understandably so. Rick Hahn, Kenny Williams gone in Chicago. 
Heimblum gone in Boston. Now Kim Ang gone in Miami for different reasons than Han and then Dayton Moore last year. Like those guys underperforming. Alavila in Detroit underperforming. This is some of the most active carousel we've seen in the front office in a long time. Because the way that these lead jobs work, you sign a three-year deal. If you're not a bottom five team in baseball when your contract is up, chances are you're getting another three-year deal. And it just cycles consistently like that. And a guy could be there for 15, 20 years if they want. Yeah. And the Marlins found the right person to do that, to just keep the cycle going for the next 15 years. <laughs> and they fumbled that bag so ridiculously hard, which is so yeah. brutal to see. Um, yeah. But they wanted to make her the number two. They didn't extend her a three-year deal. Um, and yeah, I think they're just silly. Yeah, I think if there wasn't the Derek Jeter situation previously, and, and again, I can't emphasize enough how much of a nightmare it was with not only Derek Jeter, but Gary Denbo was the problem. And he was, you know, the the vice president of scouting and player development. And that guy was just by all accounts a nightmare. And you can look at, you know, certain pieces in the athletic about how polarizing of a guy he he is and and how difficult he was, you know, to to work with, whether you were on his team or you played, you know, for the organization. So I think when you see that situation where Kim's like, I had to deal with that. I then got the opportunity to do things on my own, did well. I'm not even considering anything that could remotely put me back in that situation. If that had never happened prior and she gets this general manager job and the Marlins had a decent president of baseball operations at the time, let's say it was still Mike Hill. I think they could have made this thing work. Hey, Kim, you still have, you know, the ability to do this and that, but you know, Mike Hill is going to lean into this side of things. I think where the Marlins may have had some concern was, hey, this is one of the worst farm systems in Major League Baseball. They're incredibly brutal at at developing talent. They need to overhaul that side of things. I'm sure Kim's very aware of that. And maybe for whatever reason, the Marlins felt like she wasn't the right person to help overhaul the entire front office and the positions that they needed and also – you know, top to bottom, the entire development system throughout the farm system. That said, I think the most important part of the job is putting good product on the field and being a professional. Kim Ang put the best product the Marlins have had on the field in a while. And she's been nothing but a professional who is well-liked within the organization uh, from what I've seen on the outside and from what I've been told in conversations I've had, you know, with people within the organization. So from that lens, dude, it's it's frustrating. I, I feel for Kim. She's going to land on her feet, so it's all good. And uh, she definitely proved herself in this role. But I just – I really wonder why the Marlins thought this was worth it. I can understand wanting to to have a president of baseball operations and think, okay, yeah, that would be a nice uh, – that would be a nice advantage to have. But yeah. if it's not in the cards, <clears throat> give a little bit and let it go and and let Kim do what she needs to do. And I'm I'm assuming there's more to this that we don't know. But even then, how much more can there be to this that makes it reasonably explainable? I, I don't think there is enough there uh, to make it justifiable for the Marlins. So it's another black eye for a franchise that's just perpetually giving themselves those. It's just it's par for the course in Miami. And people wonder why Miami baseball never grows and why it's hard to you know really foster a fan base here. Every single time they start to trend in the right direction, they shoot themselves in the foot. And here you go again after their best season and, you know, for nearly 15 years, they have a sour taste in their mouth going into the offseason 
And now they're searching for a GM again, as if they're in the same conversation as the teams that you just talked about. They shouldn't be in the same conversation as the White Sox. Hell, right now, they shouldn't be in the same conversation as the Red Sox. They had a better year. They shouldn't be doing the same thing that the Red Sox are doing, which is actively searching for a GM. Because guess what? The Red Sox will turn it around quickly. They'll get a new GM. They'll spend some money. They've already got a better farm system. The one thing they had going for them was they had someone in the position to call the shots that they could at least trust with building the 40-man and building the team. If you don't trust her with the other stuff, let her grow in that role and maybe hire the right complementary pieces that she wanted. I don't I'm trying to figure out a way that it makes sense and it really doesn't. And and by the way, she was like overqualified for a GM job by the time she got one. She was an AGM in the 90s and 2000s and she worked for the league offices in the 2010s. She was so deserving of a front office job. If someone is that overqualified and they get it right before they turn 50 years old, chances are they know a lot of people that can do a lot of different jobs in a front office. So I would have full faith in her hiring the right people from her extensive time in baseball. This was not a token Nepo baby hire. This was Kim Ang earned her merit. She was overwhelmingly due for a GM job. She got one. And once she had full reins of a major league baseball organization, they fucking went to the playoffs. Yeah. It's such a hard thing for me to wrap my brain around. I can't wait to read the book, but I hope the book comes out in 20 years because she has a ton of great baseball leadership still under her belt. She's 52, 54. She's somewhere 54. Okay. She's 54 years old. I want her in a front office until she's 70. And then I want her writing the best selling baseball book of all time. <laughs> like that's just uh, how I want this thing to go. And she was not deserving of being cast to the side here. It was a really sad thing to kind of read through this morning. And really I feel sad for you and for Ethan and for Christian Crest, but like, I feel bad for the Marlins fan base because you guys had it so good with her. And you knew that you had it good. You knew that there was a long way to go, but you knew that you had it so good with her. And well, now she's gone when you weren't expecting her to be. It was it was refreshing just to to believe in a direction to a degree. You know, again, and she there's been good and bad. And and it, as any new GM in any GM period, you're going to have the good and bad. But I'm with you. Like, I think it was so important for Marlins fans to see a direction. And now they're going to have to try to buy into whoever else they bring in and the direction that they're going to try to, you know, explain and, and, and what they're going to try to say their vision is for this team. And Marlins fans have had to do that too many times. Now they had to hear the whole spiel with, with Jeter for the first time. And then they had to hear it with Kim Ang, but they had to hear it with Mike Hill before. And they heard it with Larry Beinfest before that. And yeah, you know, I just think for that reason, it's, it's just really a, a stain for them. The last thing I'll say is yeah, there's a lot of teams who stick with mediocre general managers, some of them the biggest market teams in our sport, uh, that do it because they realize, hey, this person is familiar with the organization and the grass is not always greener. So we might as well just try to build around them and and try to put them in a better position for success, for better and for worse. You can look at the Yankees with Brian Cashman, for better and for worse. But my point being is most teams tolerate a lot more bad than good once there's something proven there. And I thought Kim proved it. So you give her a three-year deal. There's no way that you're going to want out of the deal so badly by year two that no. it's such a disaster, right? The Marlins could take a full step backwards next year. And I'm still going to say, okay, I believe in Kim Ang for one more year. Like, let's see how it goes. And then maybe by the end of year two, you're like, all right, what happens in year three? 
that's a conversation that would be had then. And that's like the worst case scenario. So I feel like the Marlins automatically just took a step backwards that they didn't have to take. And that's never good for a team that always takes a step backwards. And honestly, their back was already against the wall. There was no way to go back any further. They finally gave themselves a little room between that wall. And now they're right back against it again. And that's where it's, it's just perpetual embarrassment in South Florida when it comes to the baseball side of things. And, uh, there's not going to really be a reasonable explanation for it, even if there is more to the story. And I'm sure there is. I'm sure there's things that she could have done better beyond building the roster. That comes with the territory. There's so many things other GMs can do better. And I don't know if Bruce Sherman understands that the grass might not be greener. Like, it's not. <laughs> I promise. And I I went to Tyler Milliken. Um, I went to his Twitter. Tyler does a great job in the Boston area. And he did a good job kind of consolidating all the reports when it comes to the Red Sox GM and, and Pobo candidates right now. And the leading candidates are Thad Levine, who's the head man in Minnesota right now, Eddie Romero, who is the AGM in Boston, Neil Huntington, the former GM in Pittsburgh, James Click, obviously the uh, AGM in Toronto now, but World Series winning GM in Houston last year, and then Craig Breslow, who's the AGM and the director of pitching with the Cubs. Obviously, Breslow, Breslow a name that you may remember from being a part of that World Series bullpen in 13, but Breslow has kind of helped developed the likes of Ben Brown and Cade Horton in year one and Jackson Ferris. He's ID'd these guys. So they have a lot of great candidates there. I think you should add a Kim Ang there. But aside from Kim Ang, this is the unfair nature of baseball. They're yeah. probably just picking through the scraps after the Red Sox make their decision. And that's the thing, man. So you're going to be worse off. And that's the craziest part. And this is the last thing I want to say on it. Cause if, if, if and again, we, the athletic is as good as it gets. And, you know, Brittany Garoli put this out and, you know, and this is not just her, right. This is sources throughout the athletic that, you know, I'll, I'll take it with, from where it's coming from. And, I, and I'm going to believe where it's coming from. So this is the part that stands out the most to me. And it's not entirely surprising, but according to sources in, Kim Ang wanted to make changes in some other high-ranking leadership roles in scouting and player development, which ownership seemingly was not receptive to. The analytics department is overseen by assistant general manager Daniel Greenlee. Greenlee, I've listened to, have some conversations. Seems like a good guy. Um, some of the things that he cited on conversations, interviews, things like that, in terms of analytics, are extremely dated. And he's been doing this for, for a while. And Kim Ang's a very forward-thinking mind. I think that's very clear. The Marlins have drafted like living hell. Like they have drafted like complete crap. I thought for Khalil years. Watson was fine. And that was one of their better ones, dude. That was one of their better ones. He fell in their lap. DJ Savilic has been a disaster, but for whatever reason, this organ they love DJ. He's got a lot of leeway there. And and so does Dan Greenlee. He's got a lot of leeway. So I think Kim probably wanted to shake that up. And for whatever reason, that wasn't an option. And a big reason why Kim has not had a lot of resources to work with is whatever Dan Greenlee calls his analytics department. And honestly, DJ Savilic's drafting. It's just that simple. So I don't blame her for wanting to shake it up. Most general managers or presidents of baseball operations, which was kind of her role at that point, are allowed to do that and have you know the respect and the, I would say, the ability to do so. 
And Bruce Sherman, which is so surprising here, because this is not a baseball guy compared to a lot of other owners, is all of a sudden trying to control things here and decide what makes the most sense for the organization instead of Kim Ang. Like, that's where it blows my mind. He saw Jim Crane doing his thing in Houston and was like, wait, I kind of want to do that. You got to know baseball first, man. <laughs> Sherman's a nice guy, though. It, it's no, he does. He seems by all by all accounts a great guy. Yeah. Um, but a great guy who just, I guess, doesn't want to invest in proper analytics. By the way, la- last thing. Um, happy retirement to Trevor May. Did you see him obliterate yeah. John Fisher? No. Oh, man. You should go watch that video. He awesome. obliterated John Fisher. Oh, looking forward to that. On his retirement time. Twitch. It was crazy. That's that's 80 grade loser, uh, Fisher. For, for Compared to all owners, like that's he's the worst by far, I think. Yes, and Trevor May put it in perfect words, so you should go watch that. And if you haven't seen it, those of you listening, you should go watch that. Um, Let's jump into the postseason baseball here. We've got Texas and Houston. Texas goes back to Globe Life with a 2-0 series lead. It looked like that was a sure thing after the first inning. They jumped on Framber Valdez, but then Houston crept back in, and they crept farther back in. And then they were knocking on the door, thanks to Jordan taking Araldis Chapman deep, which was like the easiest thought in real time ever. It was, yeah. I, I think everyone knew that Jordan was taking Chapman deep. But this turned into, in all in all, excellent baseball game. And it we rode the roller coaster of this game. And typically when a team's in front 4 nothing after the first half inning, it's not going to be a good baseball game. This bucked that trend. This was a really fun game to watch. Today's show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever run into a time in your life, or maybe even in the last week or two, where you have things that you want to get done on your checklist? You have things that you try to do every day, and you just can't bring yourself to do it? I run into that problem consistently. I like doing Spanish lessons on my phone. I like meditating most days. You know, it's as simple as like getting to the gym and working out. Some of these things that feel so simple from a 7,000 foot view, but when you're in the heat of the moment, when you're going through the day by day, you just can't really convince yourself to get up and go do it. I didn't really understand why that was happening until I tried therapy, and I'm so glad that I did. Therapy helped me understand that A, I'm not alone in this. There are so many other people that deal with this kind of thing. And B, it taught me skills on how to kind of get out of that rut and how to think about going about my day so I can get everything that I want to get done in a day done. If you're thinking of starting therapy, and I highly recommend it, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's convenient. It works around your schedule. Super flexible. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. It's entirely catered to you. So make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash JustBaseball today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash JustBaseball. It was awesome. And honestly, it shows you how scary the Astros are if they just had their starting pitching looking anything like it looked over the last couple of years. Yeah. That, that's the, the clear problem here is they're playing from behind more often than they should. Framber was rough, and we'll get into that in a second, but I want to start with the positives. Yeah, It was so cool to just watch them blitz him because this is a team that, I mean, it's just it feels like they're never going to stop. 
five hits in the first inning, and it was just one after another, after another, after another, and just good at-bats. Even the outs were allowed. And on the other side, you have an Astros team that what I love about them and what's fun about watching them is they're never out of it, and you always feel like you're going to have a good series no matter what. They weren't out of this game, never out of it, and they're not out of the series. It's 2-0, and they're going the other way. 90% of teams would be absolutely cooked. I have no doubt that the Astros can put up a a legitimate fight and get back into this thing. That said, who's going to pitch for them to be able to do that? We can trust Justin Verlander at this point to at least be quality. Uh, But right now, we'll see what they get from Javier this time around. But that's the big concern. The thing is, is you're not going to get bailed out by the Rangers. Framber Valdez, maybe, you know, in, in a certain matchup, could maybe back into a quality start, right? Just... Five innings, couple runs. If he goes five innings, three runs, they're probably okay. Yeah. But it's the problem is he's getting shelled. And the Rangers are not going to just fold. They're not going to just give you the opportunity to dance around and and strand runners and do the tightrope act we always talk about. Not going to happen. So that's where I'm really fascinated is just the Rangers are relentless. It was, what, three hits before you could think. It was like three hits in the first five pitches. And it was very similar to the bottom of the first inning in the NLCS, which we are going to wrap with. But Schwarber and Harper left the yard before I could even like grasp that the Phillies were at the plate. And this one, it's a 3.30 local first pitch. It's a 4.30 Eastern first pitch. Which is pitch. brutal, by the way. Brutal. It sucks. Why, why is, I understand they don't want the games to overlap, but like, come on. I think that's the reason, Um, but it stinks because you've got the game in Eastern time starting at eight and you've got the game in central time starting at three 30. Why not just flip it? So the game on Eastern time can start at four 30. Yeah. Stupid. Anyway, regardless, um, before the East coast gets out of their nine to five, the Rangers are up for nothing. Yep. And, and that is really hard for me to wrap my head around, especially against a guy like Framber Valdez, because I wake up, like I'm sure so many of you do and go on the ESPN app or at bat and you look at the pitching matchup. And I woke up and I saw Eovaldi and Fromber and I said, you know what? This is just going to be a good one. I feel it. And it wasn't a good one. (laughs) And I was wrong, but like Fromber has had two bad postseason starts. I'm not saying this is the beginning of the end, but kind of furthering your point, the Rangers will capitalize on a guy that shows any sign of weakness. And we have yet to see, I think the only guy that the Rangers can't jump on immediately is Zach Wheeler in this postseason. Yeah. And, and, you know, Verlander just seems to navigate just enough to not get like into huge trouble. I feel like, Yeah, but the problem with Valdez is like we mentioned before, I just don't think this is going to be something that gets better until the end of the season, until the season's over, until he can, probably one stop throwing for a little bit then two get back into the lab especially what they have in in Houston get those cameras all fired up and figure out what's going on mechanically that's really affecting his sinker specifically but just his overall command and his stuff so what have you noticed my thought is sinker command like the curveball he can get away with because that's a spin machine like you know it's whatever and I know that it was down a couple ticks and it was down 200 rpms today but it's his sinker command this guy like it's really good. It's a mid 90s sinker. It's a bowling ball. So no matter where he misses with it, it can still probably result in hard contact. But when a team as a collective unit is having an out of body experience, 
you can't miss with your sinker. And it felt like this guy was missing constantly with his sinker. Yeah, and it just doesn't feel like he has the same amount of life. I'd love to dive into the shape and everything and and see what the difference is there. Because weirdly, he's throwing it a little bit harder at points this year. And I wonder if it's harder and straighter and he's just not getting you know as much of the weak contact. And then on the flip side, I think the curveball has just been a little bit less consistent this year where there's so much break to it. And you see, like, he's getting the case. Like, he'll get tons of swing and miss on that pitch. But it just seems to be inconsistent. He spikes it a lot. And when he does that, I think you got a little bit more of a plan where you can just work on the sinker, look, see the ball up, and go from there. It's easier to take breaking balls down, too, when you know you can kind of just make him work upwards. And that's the thing is the sinker kind of just was that escape pitch where you could put it wherever he wanted. Even if you're sitting on it, you're still running over the top of it. With the command being a little bit spotty there and then the curveball just, again, missing down a bunch – you can really pull him up, and and I think that's been the problem, and that's why he's been giving up more home runs than ever. I mean, you include the postseason going into today, 20 home runs. I mean, that that's absolutely insane. So 20, what would he give up? Two more today? So 22 bombs that he's given up? Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, like, that is so – or sorry, one today. So yeah. 21 bombs he's given up. That's entirely uncharacteristic for him. I mean, that's just not really what – the guy, kind of guy that I feel like we've become accustomed to, especially in the postseason. But on the flip side, man, Nady Evaldi, I, I, I thought this was as gutsy as it gets. I, this the, the Astros were grinding out ABs. They were not making it easy. They're a really good lineup that's pretty dialed in right now. And I loved when Bruce Bochy gave him that fifth inning. A lot of managers today would probably pull a guy in that situation because you have so many guys in the bullpen that are used to inheriting runners, bases loaded, all that good stuff. I love the chess match here where you had Dusty go to the bench, bases loaded, nobody out, and say, Martin, you're not hitting, sorry. We're going to go to Yanner Diaz, who's been awesome for us in the second half. Yeah. Diaz, it doesn't work out, but I love the I love the chess match. And then you think maybe the Rangers bring somebody in for Diaz. Nope. They roll with Ivaldi and let the veteran kind of bully him a little bit, and Ivaldi works out of that bases loaded jam. But I like the chess match there, and I love I loved seeing Bochi roll with his guy. And not only did that help them win this ball game, I feel like they've got a lot of their bullpen still preserved going into the to the next ball game as well. Yeah, well, Kirk was was burned probably. We'll see if they use him. He's got a day off, so it'll be interesting. But I thought this was another incredible postseason start from a guy who's starting to create a legend. I think is one of the better postseason starters over the last couple of decades, and maybe by the time he's done, one of the best of all time. We saw him throw. We saw two of them throw. On Monday night, we saw Ivaldi throw and we saw Zach Wheeler throw. And we're going to hit Zach Wheeler to wrap the show. But Ivaldi, six innings, five hits, three earned, nine punch outs, and one walk. He was throwing a ton of strikes. I think it was his wild card start against the Rays. He had a 78% strike rate. I was listening to Eric Nadell, who is the Hall of Fame voice of the Rangers. And he mentioned 78% strike rate in a postseason start is the second best mark of all time. Andy Pettit had a postseason start where he threw at an 80% strike rate. Nathan Eovaldi this postseason put together the second best control start that we've seen in Major League Baseball history. That's hard to wrap my brain around, but then you watch the fifth inning and you got bases loaded, nobody out. And I want to know how far the horseshoe is up his ass. But then like, you get out of the inning and it's like, no, that might just be him. And it is. That's Nathan Eovaldi. 
we're going to continue to heap praise on him, but I do want to shout this out because you mentioned the move from Maldonado to Yiner Diaz. That was a move that I appreciated, but note it came in the first high leverage at bat for that spot in the lineup. So why are we still doing the Martin Maldonado thing? I understand the intangibles and the pitching staff likes him, but I'm going to read you this excerpt from ESPN real quick. ESPN published this before game one. Uh, What has surprised us? Call this a non-surprise surprise, but boy, does Baker love catcher Martin Maldonado. Statistically, Maldonado is the worst postseason hitter in history among those with at least 150 plate appearances. His framing metrics were among the worst in the game. He had a terrible season throwing out base stealers. Yiner Diaz is a much superior offensive player, had a much better rate throwing out runners, and the Astros had a better record when he started to catcher than Maldonado, a 619 winning percentage versus 534. But Baker trusts Maldonado, and the veteran got all four starts against the Twins. At some point, the Astros may need more offense. Will Baker be willing to sit his guy? I I, I texted you guys. I said, we're going with the vibes of Maldonado until it's time to play baseball, and then we make the move for Yiner Diaz. It, it's too much at this point. Well, the problem is when evidently he doesn't trust him. Because, I mean, if you're pinch hitting in the fifth, uh, and I know that was a big, big, big spot. You're trying to overcome a deficit and all those good things. But the, the problem is Martin Maldonado's caught every single start from Framber Valdez this year, man. Every single one. But the, the the flip side of it is, I mean, has he been that good? You know, so it's that's the other side of it. Also, to your point, when Framber Valdez is pitching and Martin Maldonado is catching, base stealers were 19 of 20 this year. So, I mean, they know that too. Like if you've got a close game, I can promise you these Rangers will start to motor a little bit. They'll start to go. They'll pick their spots. I know they're not the craziest in, in terms of stolen bases, but they'll go. And I think that's a side of it too where, yeah, you can talk about trusting guys. And I think Maldonado brings a ton of value, uh, especially for a struggling pitcher. And I think that's the side of it is they're kind of hoping that he's just somebody that knows how to work with Framber, knows how to get him right. But right now, nobody's getting him right. So you might need the offense because – if, if Maldonado is not going to help Framber keep runs off the board, you need somebody that's going to help you put runs on the board. And that's Yanner Diaz and not Maldonado by a fair margin and by a, a pretty wide gap. It is also worth noting, it is very hard to pinch hit. So you could say, oh, well, Diaz got a shot and he struck out or whatever. It's a really hard spot to get in. He probably yeah. wasn't even nearly expecting to pinch it in the fifth. So didn't really probably have much time to loosen up. Usually these guys know, hey, you're going to be up maybe next inning. Go, you know, get some hacks in and in, in you know in the tunnel. Kind of the tunnel. Yeah. yeah, go go get yourself right. I guarantee he didn't have that much notice this time around. They didn't know that they were gonna get the bases loaded there. I'm sure it was like a Yiner, go get your bat. Like go right ahead. And he probably just ran right out there. So it, it definitely was just a little bit of that. And that's where it gets interesting because I do like the feel and we talk about, you know, and it always boils back down to like the analytics versus all, all that stuff. It's stupid. I yeah. like the traditional aspect because, like, again, I just uh, alluded to the the chess match. That's very fun. Yeah. But there's a level of like willing to die on the hill of like, that's my catcher. Like, dude, yeah, Yonder Diaz is pretty much better at everything at this point. And I get it from the Framber perspective of like, maybe that's the one guy that's he's worked personal with all year. catcher. Yeah. But Let's see how they handle it the rest of the way because I don't know. You might need to change something if you're down two zip. I think so. Ivaldi uh, bullied Yiner Diaz when he was shoved into that situation and then he got out of it and it was massive. 
He also bullied two guys that are really underwhelming this postseason. Kyle Tucker is two for 22 in the postseason, and Jose Altuve is four for 25. So when those guys combine to go six for 47, I start to wonder about the Astros' ability to make it to the World Series. Am I fair in my assessment? Yeah, I mean, it's fair. I think what's also nuts is that they like, they're still hanging in there. It's, mm-hmm. I'm I'm with you though. I mean, Jordan can't do it by himself, and and Michael Brantley's been awesome. It's been really cool to see that. But and Bregman's been good too. Bregman's pumped a couple out. The 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 point too though I think is yeah. Bregg Breggy did hit a pick pick up a big home run there. I, I just feel like if this was the other Astros teams that we're used to, where they're clicking on all cylinders offensively and things are just rolling well, you can pallet the Maldonado thing at the at the nine hole. Yeah, but they need they need all the offense they can get in the back half of that lineup, and you know maybe they got to shuffle it up too. Like I'm not a big proponent of changing the lineup up, but when your one and three guys are really struggling, I mean you don't really move out two of it from the leadoff spot, but maybe adjust where where Kyle Tucker is. I think you've been getting some better at bats. I know he wasn't great today, but you've been getting some better at bats from from Jose Abreu. Obviously, Brantley's been dialed in. I, I've been loving what I've seen from him. So. It'll be interesting to see how they adjust the lineup. I think that the trend, though, is Dusty loves his guys. At least we've, it was a theme with Chaz McCormick all year, how he wasn't one of his guys at points, and you know now here he is, and he had a, he had a hit earlier today too, or, or as we're recording this, so yesterday. But it's it's going to be interesting to see. I have a feeling that Dusty doesn't change much and says if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And you know what? I don't blame him. They're a freaking dynasty, pretty much. Yep. You ever seen somebody as hot as Jordan Alvarez? Bryce Harper, <laughs> sure. Nick Castellanos. I, no, I mean it's okay. it's it's absolutely wild. By the way, Nick Castellanos, the first guy since Reggie Jackson to have five homers in a three-game stretch in the postseason, and that is literally Mister October. Castellanos in a moment. Jordan Alvarez has six homers in six postseason games this year. I heard he had a tummy ache coming into. The yeah, game. he was under the weather, and he still pumped out too. And the Chapman one was a tank absolute shot the first one was no cheapy either but the chapman one felt very robbie ray from last year where it was, <laughs> yeah you know he can annihilate a baseball and he freaking annihilated the baseball well what's crazy is it wasn't even a bad pitch it was a, it was a first pitch slider Nikki was robbie off- ray's wasn't a bad pitch either it was no. a slider low and in it was a first pitch slider on the outer black, like black, and he hit it one eleven. I, it's unbelievable to yank one one eleven on the outer black. It, it, he's just a different beast. And to to be honest, I'm not a believer in you know giving guys the bonds treatment. We talked about it with Seager, and if you have a lead, just just pitch to him. We talked about it before we recorded. Solo shots better than a walk when you got a couple run lead. Yeah, but. If you have an opportunity where you can put them on, you pretty much got to put them on automatically because this is somebody that similar to Bryce and a lot of the other best players, certain elevate just on a different level in the postseason to the point where it's like you pretty much are expecting them to go yard every time. And that's where Jordan's at. I'm very interested to see how the Rangers pitch to him the rest of the series or, or don't because you talked about the Tucker struggles. He's in front of him. Uh, Altuve is leading off, but you get the Tucker struggles in front of him. Abreu, again, has been better, but I'm not fearing him. 
you can kind of work and maneuver and massage your way around this lineup right now. Then it goes to McCormick, Pena, Maldonado. Yeah. I'm letting somebody else beat me in this lineup. Even in the first inning, I don't care. Second inning, I don't care. I'll walk you. And I think that's what we're going to start to see, especially with the other guys struggling in the lineup. Jordan may not have the same protection that he's used to, both in front and behind. And last point, they don't the reason the Rangers are better than the Astros in this series is because the Astros don't have nine guys that can beat you. And I know that Josh Young went 0 for 4 with three punchies. I know that Garver has cooled off a bit. Semyon hopefully got back on the right track with a multi-hit day. But the nine hitter, I want to tip my cap to Leody Tavares. This guy was a weird hold from the third base coach away from an inside the parker. He walked twice. He swiped a bag, sitting 350 with an OPS just under 1,100 in the postseason. Leody in the nine spot, being one of the best hitters in the postseason, has to be this galvanizing thing in the clubhouse for the Rangers. And I think, aside from the Philadelphia Phillies, their vibes are as good as any team in the postseason at any point that we've seen. And what I love, too, is that they've got this mix and match ability. You start Robbie Grossman because you don't want to hit Carter against a lefty, which makes, makes sense. Sense. Yep. And then you go right back to, to Evan Carter, you know, when, when they pull the lefty. So it, they also have this depth of really like 10 guys. I mean, Grossman's been fine for whatever reason. Bochy loves him in the three hole. So it, it's it's just fun the way that they can mix and match with this ball club. And, and to your point, I mean, everybody hit or everyone got on base, at least you had two hits for Semyon, a hit for Seager Grossman reached on an error. Uh, and then Carter hitting for him walks. Adolis hit Garver hit Heim Homer, Nate Lowe hit Josh Young was the only one that didn't have a hit. And he made some key. Play- I know he made him an error, but he also made some really key plays. And then he mentioned Tavares, like <laughs> there's not a breakthrough there. And then Josh Spores. Every time he comes in, I'm like, oh, here we go. You see, they they remind you the regular season ERA, and I know he's way dirtier than that, but they just remind you the regular season ERA, and I'm always like, oh, here we go. He's been nails. And then Chapman, like, I know he gave up the home run today, but he's been good in spots. And then LeClerc, it doesn't look pretty every single time, but he does it. He closes the door. His heart rate just doesn't seem to move. It just seems to stay, like, steady Eddie. It's... They just got it going for him right now. Now, my thing is, if you ask me in December to name someone in the Ranger pen that isn't Spores, Chapman, or LeClerc, I think I may have a tough time doing that because yeah. I'm going to forget. They're going starters and then those three, and that's the ball game every time. Yep. It's kind of like Houston, where they try and ride the starter until Neris, Abreu, Presley. And that's what they could do last year. And Montero. Montero was awesome in a contract year last year, but... I mean, man, it, it feels like those three are just the horses. Wrapping oh, real with the, quick. Sorry, yeah. real quick. That is another scoreless outing for Brian. <laughs> yeah, I know. Just, another one, I, two, three inning for Brian. He hasn't given up a hit now in four straight outings, and he hasn't given up a a run. What was the streak? Do we know what the exact streak was? I don't know what the exact streak is. I'm trying to pull it up. I think I got it here. I put out 32 straight outings now. You're kidding. 32 appearances, 33 innings, zero runs. Yeesh. That's Crazy. insane. Anyway, continue. I just I had to mention it. He yeah. it's, it's a joke how he paints. He so, even gets he gets he gets fucked on a call and then just paints it again like like a half an inch higher. So I put out a note yesterday. I said 
Bautista, um, Classe, Diaz, um, who Yoan Duran, and then maybe Brian Abreu as a top five reliever in base. I'm leaving out Hater. I'm leaving out Devin Williams. Yeah. Like I'm taking Abreu at this point over those guys. Peter said he's taking Abreu over a healthy Felix Bautista. I countered him with a hundred, a crazy splitter, and sixteen and a half strikeouts per nine. Um, I don't know. I I think that's a little recency bias. Yeah. Uh, but that said, at this present moment, if it was you got to bring in a reliever to give you a clean inning to well, save your life. Felix had a date with Keith Meister last week, so I'm going with I know. Him. I know. And I, if he went with Ella Trash, I'd probably go. I'd go with him. But yeah, I mean, even if he was healthy, like it's I, I could hear the Abreu argument, but it's I mean, this guy had a one, four, eight and 61 innings. Yeah. That said. Abreu's streak is half of that entire workload on the season of zero runs. So I hear it. Like what what, what Abreu's doing right now, like his mechanics are just synced up. He's like dotting. Yeah. He's DeGrom dotting a hundred and the stuff right now, which is that I, I haven't really seen that really also, other than DeGrom in terms of like just that quality of stuff. So consistently hitting the edges. Also tremendous backstory on Brian Abreu last night from Joe Davis or two nights ago from Joe Davis. Um, was working two jobs, one of which in construction when he was 12 years old to help pay the bills. And he was an incredible basketball player. And he thought he was going to play basketball. He started playing baseball when he was 14 years old. That explains the mechanics and the uh, consistent delivery. Good athlete on the mound. That's that's an awesome story. It's a great story. Um, Jumping to the NLCS. We can talk about the Schwarber and Harper Homer, which we're going to do in a moment, but quiz time. 19 innings for Zach Wheeler. Can you give me his strikeout to walk totals? Oh, God. 19 innings? 19 innings. I'm going to go 28 Ks, three walks. 26 Ks, one walk. (laughs) He's sporting a whip of .63. Opponents are hitting 162 against him this postseason. He's walked one. Six innings, three hits, two earned. Both runs came on that Geraldo Perdomo two-run shot. Eight punch just the funniest no part. One. Yeah, like, just of the, course, it's that's why this sport. That's why this sport rocks. It's just yeah. like no one in this entire postseason can touch the man. And then you get Geraldo Perdomo with like a 98-mile-an-hour home run. Two-run blast. We made it a ball game. Like, this, this sport's wild. But, I mean, Wheeler – it's like he saves it every single year for the postseason. And not that he's like bad in the regular season, but remember this guy had some injury history early in his career. And now has just been nails for the last handful of years. I feel like he almost just paces himself now because I think he's realized like what it takes to be able to go in the postseason. And he just empties the tank in the postseason and becomes, you guys talked about it with Walker, like one of the best pitchers on the planet. I, there's, there's nobody I'd want going for me more right now than, than this guy. And I don't know. I don't know how they can really ever not feel like they are the heavy favorites every time he's on the bump. You know, extension is a weird one. And extension was a new ad on Savant. And there are some guys that extend well, according to baseball Savant. You don't necessarily see it. This is a guy where you see every inch of that extension. 
with with Zach Wheeler. It feels like he's releasing the ball from 50 feet away from the plate. And that's pretty much what he's doing. He's 6'4". He throws like he's 6'8". He's long. It's it's so much fun. And Bueller, I thought, made a great point. That was the hardest pitch he's seen. Like that fastball was the hardest pitch he's seen as a hitter. And obviously, you know, his 97 and Duran's 102, one of which is getting to the plate quicker than the other. But from where he's releasing it, it's got to be like the glass now sensation where it's on you before it leaves his fingertips. Yeah. A hundred percent. And yeah, I'm looking at 7.3 on the extension. I mean, that's just, just disgusting. And especially when you're amped up and it's jumping out of your hand even quicker and it's a low release point. So it's taken off as well. I, I mean, that, that is unbelievable stuff. And it's just really cool to see him just dialed in. Like it's so aesthetically pleasing to watch him mix, mix and match and just attack hitters. And, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about it when I was watching this, because you talk about all of the like little things that make Wheeler so unhittable, and that's beyond just the, the quality of the stuff. Zach Gallen has great stuff, but he doesn't get that extension. He doesn't quite have the same jump from his release point as well. And it's just interesting, like watching these guys on the post. And I know it's just one start. And Zach Gallen, you know, is a Cy Young finalist and is a, one of the best pitchers in the game. But at the same time, all I could keep thinking about during the starts, like this specific outing with both of them, was just like there's levels to this shit. Yeah, and Wheeler's just on a different one to me, and and maybe not this year in the regular season, but in terms of what these men are capable of at their best, there's levels to it, and Wheeler's on a different one. And it was pretty clear which team had been there and done that, and I think we saw that first pitch. And Gallon, it wasn't a good pitch. I think he'll tell you that it wasn't a good pitch. It was a middle middle fastball. I think at ninety two, and Kyle Schwarber met that thing and rocked it one hundred and seventeen miles an hour. That was as rude of a welcome to the postseason or welcome to the NLCS as I've ever seen. And it was well-documented on the TBS broadcast. This is when Schwarber got going last year, game one of the NLCS. And that swing is the type of swing that can get a guy going. And Schwarber, we know he looks different when he's dialed. There are there are months where Kyle Schwarber goes through a regular season and you know he, he doesn't look like he has it. And then June Schwarber shows up and June Schwarber is Sammy Sosa in June in 98. But it it always feels like he kind of finds it with one swing. And you remember him hitting the Budweiser signage (laughs) on top of the right field Jumbotron at Wrigley. That was the swing that made him find it that year. And I saw that first pitch that he took into the seats and right at 117. And the thought creeped into my mind. I think that's the swing that made him find it moving forward. I I'm really interested to see because when he finds it, as you mentioned, it's the most terrifying thing on earth Um, that, yeah, that'll play. But also to your point, I think that was the softest fastball he threw of the game. I don't know if it was a cutter that didn't cut. Like, I I don't know what that was. I mean, that was a one. It was 91.4. I'm going to venture to say it was a cutter that didn't cut based on the location as well. But j- just weird, like I mean, that was a BP fastball. Maybe that's what Schwarber needed, yeah. like just to see that go. It's like seeing one go through, right? Like when it, when a shooter's cold and the, they get to the free throw line, they always say, oh, they just need to see one go through. Like that might be the equivalent of that. And of course, for Schwarber, it's one seventeen straight to right field. Uh, I I do wonder if you know fatigue is setting into a degree with Gallon too a little bit. I mean, a it, this is a guy that's had he's thrown a lot this year, man, and um, 
I think at his best this year, like he could have, he could have matched this outing, but again, Wheeler's just, it's a little bit lower effort. It's just a little bit more life. And, you know, when you're out of gas at the end of the year, I think that's kind of where you can get separated. And of course it's a tougher task to go through this Phillies lineup, but it's not like this is a, you know, any joke of, of, of a D backs lineup either. And um, at the same time, they really didn't do anything. So it what? was it was fascinating to watch. I mean, I'm I'm surprised Gallon got through five, to be honest. I didn't even think he'd go that far. And if you do want to zoom in, like it really was three big swings that did most of the damage for him. Like it wasn't like he was, you know, walking a ton of guys or he had to give up eight hits. It could have been a disaster. I don't think it was that, but I mean, at the same time, he's just running into a buzzsaw right now. I mean, think about the guys who homered off of him. You mentioned Schwarber. I think that was just a bad pitch. Yeah. But then Castellanos, who is the hottest hitter on planet Earth, and then Bryce Harper on his birthday is a guaranteed home run. He's probably guaranteed like that. That that was already chalked up. Like that was guaranteed. So it's also I've not much of an indictment on Gallon. I I was going to ask you if you have any unique thoughts on Harper and Castellanos leaving the yard because I don't. We've already gotten our thoughts out on those two guys. I, they're I good at baseball. Yeah. They're really good. Um, I don't think that. Arizona's silence offensively, especially in the early goings, was an indictment on the offense. I think it was more just a testament to Gallon or to a Wheeler. Pardon. I think whoever Zach Wheeler was going to run into was in for a, a brutal night. And I think whichever starting pitcher could be Gallon, could be Slade Ciccone, could be Brandon Fott. Whoever they run out is going to run into a rough night with the Philadelphia Phillies right now. That's the problem. So you got to be able to match them. And are they going to be able to? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, their offense came from Perdomo, as we mentioned. And you got Carroll and Marte picking up hits at the top of the order and then Longo. So they're going to need Christian Walker to step up. They're going to need Guriel, who Guriel put a really good swing on the ball that, you know, if that finds a hole, maybe we're talking about a different situation here. It goes right at, you know, the shortstop Trey Turner. But I, I thought the D-backs overall put together decent at-bats, all things considered. I mean, we saw Wheeler like absolutely rip through the Braves on a, almost a different level. Trust me, he he ripped through this D-backs team too, but I just thought that the, the at-bats were a lot more competitive than that, that Braves game, and I think they're a little bit more locked in. I think they're seeing the ball a little bit better. I, I think they'll be able to put up some runs against Noah. I think they'll be able to put up some runs against everybody else, to your point. So I'm interested to see how it continues. <laughs> All I'll tell you is I'm taking the over on the next game uh, between these two teams. I, I feel good about that one. Got you. All right. Last thing before we go, rank these three in order of highest to lowest OPS. Trey Turner, Bryce Harper, Nick Castellanos. In the postseason? In the postseason. I feel like it's a trick question if if it's not one, two with Harper. So it's going to be one Castellanos. No. It's one Trey Turner. No. Oh, wow. So it's one Bryce Harper. Yeah. Harper's got a 1522 OPS in the postseason. Then two. So is two going to be Trey? Two's Trey. A 1426. Wow. He's hitting 500 in the postseason. Well, because Cassianos went one for four with a homer, which probably brought it down. Probably yeah. brought the old OPS down. He's Trey hitting, Turner was two for four. He's hitting 370 with a 1414 OPS, Nick Castellanos, and that is third on his team. And he's betting seventh. Why is he batting seven? I know I'm not one to care that much about about the lineup. Batting order, yeah. I don't care, 
But and I think it's mostly to spread out the lefties because if you look at Schwarber lefty, then Turner, then Harper lefty, then Bohm, then Stott lefty, then Riomuto, then Castellanos, then Marsh lefty, and then Rojas. So I assume it's that. But I just it's just crazy to see a guy that that's that good right now batting in the seventh spot. It blows my mind. But if it ain't broke again, don't fix it. I guess keep rolling that exact lineup out until you lose a game. Why not? I also saw a note um, blanking on who put it out. I saw Jake Mintz liked it. It was the Arizona Diamondbacks rolled with their postseason lineup that they have run out each of the last four games, a combined zero times in the regular season. So this unique lineup that Arizona just put out was not used a single time in the regular season. Welcome to baseball. Welcome to postseason baseball. I love it. Any link you need is in the episode description. Uh, Aram and Peter will be back to talk to you guys after NLCS game two tomorrow. And I think that's it. Good night. Take care.